Well, take out your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. I'm also going to read Romans chapter 3. I'm going to do the what, the events of the cross, and then the so what of the cross. So Matthew chapter 27, you can find that on page 834 of your pew Bible. And then, Matt, and then Romans chapter 3, which you can find on page 941 of your pew Bible. Matthew 27, starting with verse 27. This is the account of Jesus' crucifixion. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him. They put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they had came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him a wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same day way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land Until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook And the rocks were split 
Now Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. So what of the crucifixion of Jesus? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? God, as we come to your word with hearts that need your grace. Life has broken us. Others have wounded us. We have responded sinfully. Our faith is weak. Maybe some of us have never come to faith in Jesus at all and we're condemned under our sin. We need you to work, O Lord, through your word, by your gospel. Make the cross so big to us that it overwhelms us with joy and thankfulness for we pray this in jesus name amen you know at the center of of christianity is the cross of jesus christ that's why we make such a big deal not just on good friday but throughout the year no cross no christianity for the heart of christianity is not a moral system it contains a moral system it's not at the center No cross, no Christianity. And yet, it is surprising how little ink the gospel writers spend on the actual crucifixion of Jesus. There have been many films, articles, books that have written that have expanded on the graphic nature of the crucifixion of Jesus... Yet the gospel writers cover the description of the suffering and death of Jesus in in less than a chapter. For instance, Matthew simply, as we hear, comes to the dying of Jesus, the actual death of Jesus, records it with one verse. In verse 50, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And the whole rest of the New Testament just expands on what God did that night, that afternoon, over 2,000 years ago. It just like unfolds the meaning of the cross. And that's what Paul has done for us in Romans chapter 3, verse 25 in particular. That's why I want to camp out on 325. I want to focus on one aspect of what was accomplished In the death of Jesus on that hill, on that afternoon, 2,000 years ago. Particularly this aspect. 
how the cross of Jesus Christ, the death of Jesus Christ, was the satisfaction of God's wrath. Romans 3.25. This was what was going on. This was God's plan. Jesus and his death, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Now, we don't use that word propitiation all that often. If you have read, if you're growing as a Christian, you may have heard that word, but it's not a word that we use in our day-to-day lives. Propitiation simply means in the scope of the scripture, a propitiating sacrifice was a sacrifice that takes away wrath. In the ancient Near East, when you offended a king by rebelling against his ways, you would have to bring a, some type of weighty sacrifice. You would have been angry. Your life probably would have been on the line to offend a king. So you would have to propitiate his anger by bringing a sacrifice that would make him pleasantly displeased towards you. But notice what Paul says in Romans 3.25. There is a Godward direction to the death of Jesus, but it also a Godward thrust. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation for our sins. And if we are going to experience joy in the cross, we need to have a clear view of why God had to put forward his own son to satisfy his own wrath. Many people will say, and you may have said it, you may believe it. My God is a God of love. He's not a God who judges. Let me say this. First of all, in terms of the gospel, those two are not opposed to each other. You don't have to choose one or the other, as we will see. Secondly, that stance to eliminate God as judge is just the luxury of the powerful and and wealthy to have a God who has no wrath. But for those who are oppressed, to have a God who will not judge is a harsh thing to say. If you've been abused or raped or molested, stolen from, imagine you're in a third world country and the mafia comes in and the military comes in and takes your children away to make them slaves and warriors for them. Do you you want at that moment no one to hold those men accountable? The oppressed long for and find comfort in the coming day of a righteous God who will put everything right again. It's only those who think of themselves as comfortable and would like to live under the illusion. And I don't have to be held accountable. Who can stand and say and even want to say God's judgment is off the table. See, the deep mistake here is is to think, I've just not done that much. I've not done that much to provoke his wrath because I'm not one of those men who steal children from their parents to make them children warriors. 
I'm not committed that kind of sin. I'm generally a good person. People think highly of me. And you think God's wrath then is small. And here's the deep mistake. That the, the provoking of God's wrath is not in relation primarily to what we have done, but to who we've done it to. It's not primarily determined by the offender, but the one offended. Let me illustrate this. You've heard me illustrate this this way before. Children, think of it this way. If, you, if your mom gets angry and slaps the dog, maybe it's your dad. Maybe let's just say your dad gets angry and kicks the dog. He's done a bad thing. Right? He's done a sinful thing. But she's probably or he's probably not going to get in a ton of trouble for that. It's just a dog. But if your dad gets angry and pulls over, slaps you in rage, it's a little more serious because you're more valuable than a dog. Now, let's imagine that your dad gets pulled over and the police officer gets on to him and he gets mad, gets out of the car and strikes the police officer, he's probably going to end up in jail. Now, let's imagine that your dad goes into a rage and assaults the President of the United States. He's probably going to jail for a very long time. Not primarily because the President is so special in any states, but because the office is quite weighty and significant, and the person who holds that office should be treated with a sense of dignity. You begin to see that the increase of glory, the increase of weight, holds us more accountable for the one that we have offended. How much more then the God of All glory who dwells in glorious light is the one that we have offended in our sin. And so God's judgment for sin, his wrath, is rooted in his character. God is holy, which means he's morally pure. He can't tolerate sin in his presence. He's righteous, which means he must punish sin. For God not to judge sin and to execute judgment would require that he cease to be a holy and righteous God. And he can't. He can no more cease being holy and righteous than he can cease being patient and loving. This is who God is. This is what God says through the prophet Jeremiah. I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth. And the wrath of God is fierce because of his glory. Jesus Jesus describes it in terms of physical agony. When God's judgment comes, this is by the way in Matthew's gospel why the earth shakes and the rocks split open. Because God is judging. And this is what happens. The earth quakes in the presence of, a God, in his, of God and his judgment. And Jesus describes the 
execution of God, the experience of God's judgment is this way. In weeping and gnashing of teeth. You ever seen someone in pain? Grit their teeth. The days before anesthetic, you would put a, a piece of wood in someone's teeth because they're clenching it down in such agony. When Jesus is looking for a metaphor to describe, an illustration to describe what the wrath of God would be like, he looked outside of the walls of Jerusalem where the trash heap was. And the trash heap burned with a fierce fire day and night. It was unquenchable. It had to be. You've seen hot coals in your fire that just have been consumed and are red hot. That's what the fires were like in the trash heap outside of Jerusalem, burning with such an intense, angry heat. And he says, this, this word that we often translate as hell in the Bible, it's Gehenna, that's the trash heap. That's what it's like. That Paul tells us, Paul tells us that God in his judgment is patient. He, in his divine forbearance, has passed over former sins. He's holding it back. And the writer of Peter and Second Peter says it this way. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. It's coming. But God in his kindness is holding it back. He's being patient. Because his desire for you, if you're not yet in Christ, his desire for you is that you would not bear his wrath. But if when he comes, you are not found in Christ, you will be held responsible for all your actions. Revelation chapter 20, this is the picture that John sees. He's seeing what's coming in the future. He sees this day of judgment. He saw, it says this, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open, and the dead were judged by what were written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up their dead who were in it. Death and hell gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Ecclesiastes twelve, fourteen. For God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. And you see, it's not just like the great sins like adultery or murder or abuse that we'll be held accountable for. Every secret thing that we have done, more specifically and more frighteningly, Jesus warns you, warns us of this. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that we have spoken. And students, how many times have you blurted out in anger to your parents, I hate you? It's written in the book. Be held. How many times have you thought that? Secret things. 
we'll have to give an account for all of those things that we have uttered hateful and careless words to our spouses in times of selfishness and pride. Words of encouragement that were not given, thankfulness that was not expressed. And then Peter also tells us not only is this going to be the way God judges, not only will it be fierce that the judgment of God will come and be unexpected. Again, 2 Peter 3, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works done on it will be exposed. And finally, the wrath of God and his judgment is permanent. The final verdict of the day of judgment is eternal. Jesus tells a parable of a rich man and a poor man who covered in sores poor man and Lazarus the two men die the poor man ends up in heaven at God's side and the rich man's cast into hell and the rich man is in torment and he begs Abraham for some relief and this is what he says between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. We're, when God's judgment comes, He'll hold us accountable for what we've done and said and thought. It'll come like a thief in the night, and it will be permanent. There's no second chance after death, for it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes the judgment, Hebrews sixteen twenty seven. Now, have I made you unpleasant, a little uncomfortable? I have. It's hard to preach this. It's hard to lay this out. It's hard to lay this out because it cuts my heart. It's hard to lay this out because it's not good news. It's not the fun stuff. But let's turn from the... Let's turn for relief from terror of hell and the coming of God's judgment, not to dismissing it, but embracing it. So, because this is what Paul says in Romans 3.25. This was God's solution to the problem of his own wrath and our sin. Jesus was put forward by God as a propitiation by his blood. Blood is Paul's shorthand for referring to Jesus' death on the cross. Among the last words that we heard Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God was angry pouring out his wrath. Jesus had lived a perfect life, fulfilled all of God's command, prayed diligently, defeated God's enemy, Satan, healed the sick, opened the eyes of the blind, kept all of God's commandments perfectly, no harsh word, no lost temper. Yet at the moment of his death, the father was fiercely angry with his son, Jesus was the substitute of the hell condemned. 
at his death, the moment of his death, he was not an innocent man. Even though he had lived a sinless life. He was not innocent because he had taken on the guilt of our sin. By God's design, God put him forward as the propitiation for his wrath. Or 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, For our sake God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The innocent one died as a sinner because of all the sin of his people. All of our sin. Past, present, future. All of our sin was laid on Jesus. And he died bearing all of God's wrath. There was only one who could suffer to that degree. The one who was fully God and fully man. Fully God to bear all of God's wrath. Fully man to bear all of our sins. You see, the death of Jesus doesn't make us save a bull. It saves us. Jesus' death is enough. God requires no more. Why? Because his wrath is propitiated once and for all, swallowed up, satisfied. That was the design of God's atoning work. That was the design of Jesus' death. It was enough to propitiate the wrath of God for all for whom he died. Lest you think that you have to choose between the wrath of God and the love of God, 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son To be the propitiation for our sins. The early church father, Augustine, refers to Romans 5.8 and he says this. God, Romans 5.8 says this. God shows his love for us that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is Augustine's comment. Therefore, God had his love towards us even when exercising hatred towards him. We were the workers of iniquity, accordingly, in a manner wondrous and divine, he loved us even when he hated us. Verse 26, Romans chapter 3. Why did he do this? It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Do you want to see who God is in all of his fullness? Do not only look at his love, look at his righteousness. Look at his judgment and see them come together once and for all in the cross of Jesus Christ. For in love, he put forward his own son to satisfy his wrath for our sins. And where wrath and love meet, 
and wrath has been propitiated, only love remains. And so the cross demonstrates God as the just one whose wrath must be satisfied. It also demonstrates his love for you as a sinner. You see the root word that is translated for propitiation. We use it this way. Someone is propitious towards you. You might not use that a lot, but it might be your word of the day. It means they're pleasantly disposed to you. That's the word for propitiation, to make one joyful and favorable. And you see, the cross just does that. It removes God's wrath by satisfying it. So much better than just denying it. To see it satisfied. So that we can say with Paul and now in Romans 8, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for him all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For where wrath and love meet, and wrath is propitiated, God delights, it's all that's left, is the pure delight of his people. And so brothers and sisters, rejoice. You're no longer verdict, prisoners of the verdict, guilty hanging over your head. If you are in Christ, the countenance of God is now that he smiles on you with great delight. Let's pray. God, if this would, truth would grab our hearts, then we would rejoice. So make us a joyful people by pressing this in so deep that we would see your smile even in the most difficult of times. We pray this because Jesus was crucified for our sins. Amen.